several phrases in that song, prophet phrases that spoke of ransom. But there was another phrase that spoke of God promising in his word, which was followed by the phrase, Behold. And there is an emphasis in this text, and we will get to it, that speaks of us believing God. We believe his promises. And because we believe those promises, our hope is in God to fulfill them, knowing the world. Please take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I would like to read the section that we are looking at today. We began looking there last week. It's a section that follows two previous commands that we looked at. The command to fix our hope on the coming of Christ as we journey through life. And then the command to be holy, be set apart for God to a life of obedience. That's what we learned when we looked at that section. And then we began last week looking at this one and focused strictly on the command to conduct ourselves in fear, the fear of the Lord, that reverence for God. I was stopped on the sidewalk yesterday before we began our services by a gentleman who told me, he said, you know, I've been in your services in the past. But I don't agree with you. He said, I am attending all kinds of churches around the city, and I'm studying with gurus and other things. But he said, for some reason, every time when I live in the neighborhood, he says, every time I walk past this building, I stop. And I sense that something is here. He said, I have watched you folks for years reach out to this community and do good things for your neighbors. And he said, I don't get it. I shared with him that it's the gospel of God that has changed us. It's the gospel of God that has given us a love for our neighbors. I love my neighbor. He said, I wish I could do that. He said, everybody's so greedy and so selfish. I said, it takes a radical change. It takes the new word to change your heart. And I told him what we were studying, and I told him that what society lacks is a fear of God. He looked at me and said, well, I don't fear God. He said, why should I be afraid of God? Then I took him to the illustration of his family life. I said, do you have children? Yes. Got two sons. I said, when your sons disobey you, do you discipline them? 
is what am I bringing my kids? I said, I didn't ask you to teach your kids. I said, teach your kids, not this one. Now, got a little kind of soft spot on the backside, didn't just smack once or twice, get their attention. But this is one gives instruction and correction. We want to correct the way our children think, and we want to correct the way our children act, right? So that they would be obedient to mom and dad. And then I turned to him and I said, did you make your sons respect you? Oh, yes, I made my sons respect me. Oh. So I said, so you're in charge then in your house? Yes. I said about the same thing in our household. I said, my kids grew up fearing and reverencing their father and mother. And I said that nothing bothered me more than to come home and find out that my sons had disrespected their mother. I mean, you want to get a dad in sense? And to communicate to your children that, kids, you're not in charge. Your mother's in charge. And when you defy her and disobey her, you deserve the discipline that is coming to you. Because I expect that to change. And it got the connection. And I said, the God who made heaven and earth is in charge. He's the one that made us. And he is the one that sets all of the rules and all of the laws. And every single one of his laws has been written in our mind. That, that is why it doesn't matter where you travel in the world, it doesn't matter which culture you investigate during whatever time in human history, every single person knows it's wrong to make things that don't belong to the family of all the neighborhood. That is why every society knows that it's wrong to murder and to lie about other people and to cheat on their spouse and to take their neighbor's possessions. We know every society that is wrong for a child to disobey their father. And that's because the Creator has put His law within our hearts. He is in charge. God is in charge. And it's because of His supreme authority that we stand in awe of our Creator and we fear. For he is a judge. He is a judge that's impartial. He does not receive any person before him. In other words, he's going to look at me and look at you. You will not receive my face above yours or your face above mine. He's going to treat us without respect of persons equally in his sight under his law. He's impartial. He's not only a father, but he's the judge who will judge every single thing that we have done. In light of that, we are to fear and reverence to the Lord. So let's read this text. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Here's the main imperative verb 
conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. We're all here on earth right now, right? We are on life's journey. We are existing under the sun. But this is not the only place where we're going to exist. God has put eternity in your heart, and we are going to live forever somewhere. So conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And here is the key word. It's a key participle. Live in fear. No. Live in fear knowing something. You know what will motivate your fear of God in a great way? Is when you know, as a believer, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As a lamb, unblemished and spotless. Blood of Christ. For he that is Christ, Barnabas describing him, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared the second possible in these last times for the sake of Who through him, that, that is Christ are believers in God. Two participles describing God, the one who raised him from the dead. And the second participle, and gave him glory. So that your faith and your hope I have a certain future. 
that has been planned for me from eternity past. And so on my journey under the sun, I'm going to determine to allow the Spirit of God to make changes in my life so that I'll look past the gloom and past the darkness and past the uncertainty and fix my hope completely on the coming of Jesus Christ. And by the power and help of the sanctifying Spirit, the Holy Spirit, I'm going to continue to ask for His help to overcome my sin and my disobedience. And by the kind grace of God, I'm going to fear the maker of heaven and earth because I know that He's provided redemption for me. Now, what does it mean to be ransomed? What does it mean to be ransomed? To be purchased from slavery? Now, historically, nearly every single society on earth has practiced human slavery. It goes back to the beginning of time. And by the way, in the Roman Empire, when Peter was writing his letters, slaves accounted for nearly a fifth of the population. Slaves were of all ages, ethnicities, both men and women. And some of those slaves engaged in hard labor while others had an easier, more domestic existence serving in someone's household. But no matter what kind of slave labor they performed, every single one of those slaves was owned by a master. And they didn't have personal rights. They had to obey their master. And if you disobeyed, there was severe punishment that came your way. More serious offenses might even entail the death penalty. And so on the human level, we understand slavery. Every single person who's ever lived has been a slave to sin. And in fact, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, the text says, We were slaves to sin. And in the verse prior, it says that we obeyed sin. Sin was our master. We had no choice. That sin that came into the human race through the disobedience of Adam has corrupted all of us. Corrupted the entire person. It's come in. It's infected our soul. It's polluted the way that we think. It's defiled our conscience. It's contaminated our affections. It's poisoned our will. It is life-threatening. It's condemning. 
It has been our master. And we have no choice but to serve. You know, at the time, we didn't think ourselves enslaved to sin, right? People today who are enslaved by sin really think they're free. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Well, while you were enslaved to sin and society is enslaved to sin, they are free from something. And the scripture says that we were freed from acting righteously. Righteousness was not our master. Sin was our master. But when you experience the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we are set free from the master of sin and have now become obedient to what? Righteousness. You will be a slave to someone, you will be a slave to sin, or you will be a slave to righteousness. And so this text is going to speak to us about our being ransomed. Set free by the payment of the price. And this text is going to tell us who the Redeemer was. This text is going to tell us the price that was paid for our redemption. I want you to stop and think about this. The concept of redemption flows all the way through the Bible. It's illustrated for us that we might know the spiritual redemption that is ours in Christ. You've got the history of the nation of Israel in the scripture. You read through the first book of the Bible and you come to the second book of the Bible and the title of that book is what? Exodus. And it's the story of what? The story of their redemption from Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt, but they were redeemed from their slavery. As you continue to read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you're going to come to them being taken captive once again to Babylon and to the Assyrian people. And yet, there is a deliverance in part, and people return back to the land, right? But that's not the final story. For when God took the nation of Israel out of the land, he scattered them around the nations of the world. But he's promised a future redemption for the nation of Israel. Are you aware of that? You see, he begins their calendar year, giving to them his feast. They're called the Feast of the Lord. And the very first feast in the springtime is the Feast of what? Passover. Right? A feast that commemorates their redemption from the slavery they had in Egypt, right? But also redemption from death. The death nature passed over them. So it is a celebration of redemption from slavery and redemption from death. Now don't miss that because we're going to come back to that. That begins their calendar year. But what is the very last feast 
in the fall of the year for the nation of Israel. The feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles. And what does that feast commemorate? I mean, why did God stick these things in his eternal calendar? That feast celebrates the redemption not from Egypt. You read the prophets, and the prophets say that the day is coming for Israel, but they'll no longer say, Blessed be the God who delivered us from Egypt. But blessed be the God who's delivered us from all the nations of the world and brought us back to the land. So the very calendar of God that is still celebrated by Jewish people all over the world is a calendar that begins with redemption and ends with redemption. This great truth of redemption God wants us to understand. And so that we would understand our need for a Redeemer, someone that is akin to us, someone that is bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh, someone who can mediate for us, someone who can stand in our stead as a man. We have the story of Ruth. And we're introduced to the concept of the kinsman. Are you with me? This concept of ransom and redemption is a major teaching of the Word of God. And so I want to bring a few thoughts to your mind about this redemption. A redemption that is personally needed by everyone. And the first thought I'm going to draw from verses 14 and 18, and it is a redemption that society needs. I don't have verse 14 on the overhead, but I'll just read that verse. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. And then a phrase in verse 18. You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. My friend, society needs this redemption. They need to be redeemed from a life of ignorance. Verse 14. There are so many people out there that don't know the world. My friend that I talked to yesterday does not have a personal knowledge and a personal relationship with his community. And even the greatest philosophers throughout man's history are ignorant. You know, I remember when I was in college having to read writing that penned by Aristotle and by Plato. It was Plato who said this. It is hard to investigate and find the framer and father of the universe. And if one did find them, it would be impossible to express them in terms that all could understand. There's an influence. Aristotle would say this. He's a supreme cause. By all men dreamed of, and by no man, no man. 
Jesus' name, we sing to you. All of the gods of all of the pagans were totally uninterested in them. Totally uninterested in them. Remember reading the stories in high school? God, Zeus, Aphrodite. Those gods were mere images of man in his drunkenness with Dionysus, in his passionate lust at the wings. And we go on and on and on. Humanity needs this redemption because of their ignorance of God. They're enslaved to their ignorance. Humanity needs this redemption because of their enslavery to their own lust. The lust for power, the lust for possessions, the lust for pleasure, the lust for dominance, the lust for position. And when you go back into the world that this book was penned in, Peter's two letters, you discover that it was a world of a tremendous social divide. And all the way at the top were the elite, the banquet rooms that were filled with lust and unrestrained sex. Jerome, one of the writers, and I might have referenced this a few weeks ago, tells us that in Rome, there was one woman married to her 23rd husband, and she was his 21st wife. The adultery and the fornication and the pedophilia and the homosexuality run like a river through Rome. And all of this sexual lust was so common, it just seemed the natural thing to do. And we see that in our own society today. This Netflix with this movie that was exploiting these young girls, accepted by so many, condemned by few. And a life of futility for Satan. So many people just have no meaning in life. What is the meaning of life? This man that I talked to yesterday didn't believe in eternity. He thought this was it. I told him I believed in heaven. He said, Well, listen, I think that, that heavens can only be here on earth. I said, Could you imagine that this is heaven? I never heard, heard the expression heaven on earth, but I've heard hell on For people, life is futile. It has no meaning. It is empty. It's vanity of vanities. You read Ecclesiastes in our Bible. It's a book that you'll find the phrase over and over again. Life under the what? Under the sun. Under the sun. Under the sun. And here is Solomon pursuing everything. He pursues position. He pursues power. He pursues his own lust. He pursues all these things. And he says it's empty. It's futile. He says the conclusion of everything. The twelfth chapter is what? Fear God. 
They need to be released from the slavery they experience in sin. Someday you're going to bury me. The Lord carries My kids will stand before my father. I will be crying. And it will appear as though death has enslaved me. The death has held me in its grip. It might look that way in time, but I am going to be redeemed from death itself. Death will not win. Death will not sting me forever. I'm thankful for this redemption. And not only is it needed by man, but in verses 18 and 19, I see that it's accomplished by Jesus Christ at great cost. He wants me to fear God, knowing that I was not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. You know, silver and gold was used to redeem slaves. You could become captive, a uh, captor in a war, owned by a conquering army, and they would allow you to be redeemed. You could be purchased with silver and gold. And he's contrasting that purchasing with silver and gold with the redemption that we need that has a payment that far exceeds corruptible silver and gold. He wants us to understand the price of our redemption was verse 19. Precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood Blood is precious. Without it, not a single one of us in this room can live. The life of the flesh is in the heart. And the life of Jesus Christ was precious. And his life poured out was precious. When we speak of the shedding of blood, we're, we're talking about the giving up of life. We're talking about the death of Christ. And the means for our ransom was the death of Christ. That death that is described so fully in Isaiah chapter 53, that death which was pictured through all the Old Testament sacrifices. Every sacrificial lamb had to be without blemish, right? And most of those lambs had to be male, right? I mean, why did God do all of that? Why did he, in his worship, set up this system? So many people read the Old Testament, they just can't figure it out. They're wandering down and all those animals go back. I'll tell you why. They were God's picture prophecy. 
the peace offering, and the trespass offering, and the sin offering. All of these were pictures of the coming Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Picture prophecy of the redemption of Christ that took place at Calvary. I mentioned earlier that when God instituted the Passover, that Passover lamb was an illustration of redemption from slavery and redemption from death. That angel would pass over every house that was, was covered the doorpost with the blood. Listen to the word of God. Matthew 20 and verse 28, the scripture says, It is not this way among you, for whoever wishes to become your become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. Romans 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction for all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, awaiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our what? Our body. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. For by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Ephesians 1 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the dominion of darkness. That's where we were. Under the dominion of darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. Even the forgiveness of sins. Do you want to be redeemed from the judgment of God? Do you want to be redeemed from slavery to sin? Do you want to be redeemed from death itself? Do you want all of your sin to no longer be remembered before God? My friend, there's redemption in Christ, the great Redeemer. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. Titus 2.13, I'm looking for the blessed hope. Even the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself the people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove all authority. Don't let anyone disregard you. I find in that Titus 2 13 verse a reference to everything that Peter writes here. Hebrews 9 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The tabernacle and the temple and the holy place and the most holy place and the ark of the covenant and the altar, the brazen altar, all of these things right here in Hebrews tells us that it was picture play of the work of Christ's redemption. I love Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant. So that, now here it is, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first time, I have sinned against the family of God. I've sinned against the ten words. I am enslaved to sin. And I had nothing to look forward to but the just judgment of God, expressing itself in wrath and anger and judgment. I needed something to appease that. I needed to have to satisfy it with death itself, for the wages of my sinning is dying. And yet God sent a kinsman redeemer. God sent a son. God sent a substitute. God sent a savior. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Who would stand in my stead and face the judgment of God. In his death. In his Christ. Yes, this redemption is needed by every man. And this redemption came at great price, and it was the death of Christ on Calvary. But I would have you know in verse 20 that this redemption by God was planned before the creation of the world, and it was accomplished in time. Look at verse 20. Speaking of Christ, for he was foreknown. Now look at this next verse. Before when? The foundation of the world. You know the word world means cosmos, the Greek word cosmos. By the way, the language we get the word cosmetics, right? The word cosmos means order. Now I'm not suggesting that you use cosmetics to bring order to anything. I would even suggest that or even put that in anyone's mind. Um, I might not get back to my apartment. <laughs> no, the word cosmos means order. 
And before God ever laid the foundation of the cosmos, before he ever took what he took and threw it down to become the foundation for what is orderly, and by the way, it's orderly, isn't it? Design is out there. Intricate design is out there. They tried to explain all this without using evolution. And yet, every look with the furthest point in space is a look of order, a look of design. And then at the microscope, and just look through the best of lenses to the intricacies of the cells. Look at the atom itself, split the atom. And you will find from the smallest particles to the masses of space, there's nothing there but order and design. But before God ever took and threw down the foundation for that, before he was ever a creator, he was a redeemer. Christ is the Lamb that was foreknown and foredetermined to redeem before we were ever created. You see, then that's his end and knowing who our God is, his Father that we call on. This God is to be feared and reverenced. Planned to redeem us. Planned to let us experience that this, this, this being is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of kindness and a God of love. How could we have ever understood that apart from redemption? A God who created This was planned. He was manifest. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of the world, made out of the world, that he might redeem us from under the judgment of face. Because of our disobedience to us. I have received another part. In verse 20, that he came in these last times for the sake of you. And in verse 21, the who. The word who is a reference back to the you. You who, now here it is, through him. Are believers in one. I began by telling you I believe God. I believe God just like Abraham did. And he had righteousness treasured in him. I believe that God was able to accomplish my redemption. I believe that God's judgment would be appeased and his wrath would be turned from me. I believe that God has a hope eternally in front of me. I believe that. I believe God. You know why I can? Because it's through the work of Christ. And apart from Christ, 
I could not believe in God. It is through Christ. It is through His work. Acts 2.38 Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that through Him everyone who believes is freed from all things, redeemed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. I could not be redeemed or freed from my, from my sin and my judgment through myself and my obedience to law. I couldn't do it. But I have been ransomed and freed from all things through Christ. I am a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. I am thankful for what Acts 20 21 says, testifying both to Jews and to Gentiles of repentance for God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. My faith is in Christ. My faith is in what He accomplished for me. I totally believe that what the Father said about the work of His Son would accomplish an eternal redemption for me. I believe that. My faith is in Christ. My friend, it is not the quantity of your faith. It is the object your faith is not in Christ, and I can give absolutely no assurance to you that your sins are forgiven, that you have been ransomed, but if your hope and trust and confidence and belief is in the work of Christ, then I can assure you that you are redeemed. I close with one more thought from this text. And that is this. This redemption. This redemption. This ransom from slavery. Accomplished by Christ. And dying in my place. Satisfying the justice of God. I want you to know it's acceptable to the Father. It's acceptable. And how do I know that? For in verse 21, who through Christ, I'm a believer in God. And then there's two participles to follow that. The focus on God. God, the one raising Christ from the dead, and God, the one giving Christ glory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the testimony of God that He has accepted the living Christ. And He took Him out of the Christ came and performed all of that.
Thank you. 